Welcome to Voices from Eerie. My name is Goliath, and you're listening to this podcast? Ah, will the wonders of this world never cease? The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a Spectacular Radio, a Spectacular Spider-Man related show that start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter at Spidey Dude Radio and this show at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher such as apple Podcasts, spotify podcast iheart radio podcasts amazon audible as well as google podcasts it helps us raise our vis- visibility and like share and subscribe for more at spidey dude network youtube.com slash spidey dude network also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Erie, a Gargoyles podcast. I am your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and joining me as usual is my partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And back again is the co-creator and co-producer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles and the writer of the SLG comic books, Gargoyles and Gargoyles Bad Guys, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Glad to be here. And we are pleased and honored to be joined by a living legend, a man who needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway, actor, voiceover artist, stage, screen, Mr. Keith David. Howdy, howdy. Keith, thank you so much for joining us. It means a lot. And I would like to begin this by congratulating you on Douglas the Prophet. I'm a New Yorker. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I'm a New Yorker. The tickets were sold out just when I found out about it. I would have loved to have attended. 
Well, I would have liked you to have been there, but, you know, we had a great time. Thank you. But um, a little bit of trivia. The first time we met, it actually wasn't at a Gargoyles convention, though I saw you at most of those. I met you for the first time. It was summer of 2000. You were doing Shakespeare in the Park, A Winter's Tale, and I introduced oh, myself wow. I introduced myself to you shortly afterwards. You were very gracious, and I wouldn't have known had Greg not posted at the time in the Station 8 comment room telling fans in the New York area to go see it. Well, thank you, Greg. <laughs> he's, your, he's your hype man. Yeah, man. Love that. Anything I can do. So, Keith, we like to get to know to know our guests uh tell us a little bit about your background what made you go into acting um uh, for me it was a calling i didn't i didn't i mean um i just always wanted to be an actor and um well i mean i wanted to be a preacher and i wanted to be a lawyer when i watched topper on tv i i wanted to be a bank president when I watched the Donna Reed show, I wanted to be a pediatrician, you know, I mean, but I could be an actor and do all those things. So. Um, Very nice. And and how did you go um, from acting on the screen to, to voice acting? What was your first voice acting experience? Oh, like? my, um, my first, uh, you know, I auditioned, auditioned a lot for commercials. Um, and that, in those days it was a very closed club. Um, but, um, I, I had a, I had a wonderful agent who just kept sending me out. And after a while I started getting, um, uh, getting requests and, you know, I had always wanted to do animation and, um, narration. And soon I got to do that. I mean, that, that, that was, that was great. I used to do a lot of National Geographic, uh, which was always fun because, you know, I, I, I used to watch um, Marlon Perkins, you know, uh, Wild, Wild, <laughs> Wild Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I used to watch that all the time. It was one of my. It was favorites. really great, right? You know? Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like he would be sitting back in, in his office telling us all about it and sending, uh, what's the other guy's name, sending him out there to like, go trank dart this rhinoceros. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Marlon Perkins had the cushy job. <laughs> it was a great show. And the great, and, and you know, great guys narrating it. You know, um, John Forsyth, who um, uh, was a guest on, on Gargoyles, got to meet him. Um um, William Conrad, uh, all, all, all those, you know, really phenomenal voices. Iconic voices. Very. And as it, as it turned out, Ed Asner was, uh, you know, one of his best friends was one of my teachers, Norman Rose. And I think one of the, one of the, uh, nicest, um, and, um, heartwarming things ever said to me was one day we were doing an episode and he leaned over to me and he said, you know, Norman would be very proud of you. And I was like, wow. Now that's a compliment. Yeah. Awesome. Ooh, good yeah. kind of chills. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about, a little bit about developing Goliath as a character. We 
discuss that a little bit in the making of the, of the show. This is for both Greg and Keith, of course. Mm-hmm. And obviously, Keith ended up bringing a lot to the role. He he is Goliath, as far as I'm concerned. I think as far uh, as we're all concerned. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was one of the, you know, the best um, auditions I've ever had. Uh, and certainly one of the greatest jobs I've ever had. Is, Goliath is certainly in the in the top three of my very favorite characters in the world. I mean, when I grow up, I want to be like Goliath. Uh, and the, the the thing that I remember the best, the most was, uh, you know, the, um, the um, as they will have a frame of reference, uh, it said Sean Connery type. Uh, so I came in trying to do my best Sean Connery, whatever that was. And, uh, and then I think either, I don't know if it was Greg or whoever said, uh, don't do that. Just talk. <laughs> and, uh, maybe it was Jamie. I don't know. But, uh, I think it was Jamie. yeah. Then the next thing I know, you know, we're all there working together. And it was, and it was really one, I mean, my God, the best three seasons, you know, of my life and professionally. I mean, I, I just loved it. I just loved it. Especially with the ones that Greg wrote. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't say that cause, cause he's here, so because he's here. He's got a wonderful, say, got a wonderful him, propensity for the Shakespeare. Huh? <laughs> he didn't write any of those. <laughs> I, I, I was the producer, supervising producer with Frank Parr, but um, in, in those days, uh, I didn't have time to write. Uh, so I wrote literally none of them. I, I did edit them all, uh, uh-huh. but uh, but no, I didn't. I don't want to take credit where it's not due. <laughs> well, we had uh, uh, we had some wonderful writers, and you know, we did, yeah. Michael Reeves, uh, Chandler, who wrote this episode. Michael, Michael was wonderful. Um, now, yeah. Greg, when you um, when you were going for casting, like. Um, Obviously, the cornerstone of this whole show is Goliath. Um, like, what kind of stuff? Did, I mean, obviously, you're asking for a Sean Connery type was was what uh, they were leading with. But what yeah, did you were you expecting? I don't specifically remember asking for Connery. That may have been some kind of lost in the translation message that got out to Keith at some point. Uh, it was like oh, it was like it was. Like, no, they, they always have a, like a like a frame of reference, you know. Like when you're going to do a commercial, they look for, you know, a James Earl Jones type, or they want a Burgess Meredith type. You know, that's the art, you know. Uh, and on on my paper, you know, on my uh, on on my sides was Sean Connery. One of the deals when we were auditioning for this show um, was. Two, uh, two things. One was, um, obviously, Goliath was the key character for us. And, and yet the two characters we had the hardest time finding were Goliath and Elisa. Um, we cast Demona right away, Xanatos right away, Brooklyn Lexington, Broadway, Bronx right away, Hudson mm-hmm. right away. And we went through hundreds, I'm not exaggerating, of actors on both Goliath and Elisa, and heard a lot of really great people. And yet, it, 
just never quite seemed right. And then Keith walked in the door, and same with Sally on the Elisa side, but Keith walked in on in the door, and he read, and suddenly it's like he's the guy, like no question. Um, and again, this wasn't like desperation or anything like that. I mean, at one point, again, without mentioning names, we were feeling desperate and um, on both those roles, and we went in to my boss, Gary Kreisel, with people who we thought, wow, this isn't exactly what we're looking for, but I feel like maybe they could get there. Um, with a Goliath choice and Annalisa choice, and Gary wisely said, is this really what you're looking for? And we're like, and Jamie and I are like, well, not exactly, but we think we can get there with them. And he's like, don't settle, not on these two characters. Don't settle. And so we didn't. And we didn't know it, but we were just waiting for Keith to walk in the door. Um, and, and then that was it. You know, I mean, uh, and Keith came in, uh, I wasn't there, Keith, for your original audition, but when you came in for the first episode, it was like, yeah, that's it. That, this is, you know, I mean, I, I had heard your audition already, obviously. I wasn't present when you recorded but, uh, but when you came in and I was there for the recording of the first episode and I was like, yeah, this is so perfect. Um, and that episode was so much fun to record. And the thing you have to remember is, uh, in the pilot, it was originally a four episode pilot that we later split into five episodes. Mm. The first episode encompassed the entire 994, you know, medieval uh, stuff that was later split between episodes one and two. And so, you know, at the end of that episode, you get, you know, everything from, you know, I've been denied everything, even my revenge. My revenge. You, know, you get that One of my line. great lines. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, you know, to the, to the lovely angel of the night, quiet stuff early on, you know, you get all these different aspects of Goliath in this first episode and Keith um, just brought so much nuance to all of it, so much emotion and so much everything. And, 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 you know, I am, as Keith noted, a massive Shakespeare junkie and <laughs> he's really brought his Shakespearean chops to this show and just elevated everything. And that's what we needed because, um, I mean, we talked about this before when we talked about the development of the series, the series was originally developed as a comedy and every, there was a version of almost every character in the comedy development, except Goliath. There was a version of Hudson named Ralph. There was a version of Broadway. named Coco. <laughs> there was a version of Demona of Xanatos of, Brooklyn Lexington, you know, uh, but there was no Goliath in the comedy development. And then um, when that failed to sell and we went back to the drawing board and it was suggested that we create, you know, a heroic beast to go opposite the beauty, quote unquote, beauty that is Elisa, 
for that Beauty and the Beast feel, mm. um, Greg Guler and I created uh, Goliath. And then we put the whole show through the prism of Goliath and came out the other end with the, the action drama, you know, that still had humor in it, but it was no longer a comedy, right? And we put it through. And so everything revolved around Goliath. And I know I've talked about this before. One of the models I used um, was Hill Street Blues and how the show had this immense cast that rotated around uh, Daniel J. Trevanti's Frank Ferrillo mm -hmm. character in the Senate. But if Ferrillo doesn't work, none of it works. And likewise, for Garlos, if Goliath doesn't work, none of it works. And Keith is the guy who walked in the door and made Goliath work. And our sessions, for the most part, uh, particularly season one, were just, I, I don't know how to say it except joyous. I mean, just, we had so much fun. Yeah, yeah. Recording this show. And then, you know, <laughs> he had to go and get, he had to go and get a Broadway role in Seven Guitars, and we had to record Keith Season 2 long distance. And that wasn't, I mean, it was still great, but it wasn't as fun because, you know, he wasn't there with the group, you know. Um, but uh, that first season in particular, um, when we were all there together. Oh my yeah. God. Wasn't that great? Such a blast. Wasn't that great? It really was. And you know, um, the guy, the guy, Bob Pullman, who, whose studio that I used the most for gargoyles is today's one of my, you know, very best friends. He's a really good man. Uh, in New York, still, in New York. Yeah. 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 I mean, we, uh, we just had, a blast. And I remember when we premiered in Florida, Keith and Sally and Marina and Gary Kreisel and I went down to Orlando right. yeah. for the premiere <laughs> in, in, in uh, this movie theater uh, that used to, I don't, I don't think it's still there, but it's, it was called Treasure Island or something like that. Pleasure Island. Uh, or Pleasure Island, yeah, Pleasure Island, off of the, out, you know, out of Pinocchio, and they had a multiplex there, and um, I think I told this story, so I won't repeat the whole thing, but but basically, um, we had uh, two screenings, and uh, at the end of the screenings we had in in one of the two theaters, we had uh, a press. Uh, conference, I guess you'd call it, with the five of us up on stage taking questions from the audience. And, um, you know, someone was uh, asked a question about the, you know, the beauty and the beast, you know, metaphor in this. And, and uh, um, someone said uh, something about, you know, you know, the, the, the beautiful woman and the ugly beast. And then some reporter in the audience said with this huge romantic sign her voice, Oh, I don't think Goliath's ugly at all. This is one of the reporters. Great amount of, 
uh, laughter goes up, but it was just like, yeah, you know, how do you not fall in love with Goliath? I- I'm asking you, Jennifer, how do you not fall in love with Goliath? <laughs> I love Goliath just because I have a penchant um, for the bad guys. <laughs> in that case, we'll have to have Keith uh, back on I mean, for one of the Thalog episodes. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> And that was fun, too. So, and that's what we needed. I mean, we needed our audience to uh, see, to love Goliath, to see him for who he was and, um, and you know, not judge the book by its cover, so to speak. And, uh, and that is what Keith brought to it every single day, every single day. Um, and, uh, I was just in New York last weekend to, to see my kids and, uh, uh, and I remember also that, uh, Keith and I went to like 1996, uh, some event in New York, uh, to promote the show, um, Gary Mariano and, and, uh, and I just remember, because I walked by P.J. Clark's, and I remember us after the event having dinner together at P.J. Clark's. <laughs> and Keith advising me to eat more healthily. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> advice that it only took me 30 years to take, you know. <laughs> well, you know, that was... Uh, but, uh, those were great that was my That was my wife and I's first date. Uh, oh, yeah. Was, was oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, the, the very first Gargoyles convention. That's not what I was talking about before. Uh, that was a different event. That was some uh, publicity event. Oh, for, yes. uh, uh, but the the next year was the first Gargoyles convention, which was in New York City that year. And um, uh, I was at the convention, uh, and um, I knew Keith was in New York, and I said, hey, do you want to come to this thing? And... He said, uh, sure, uh, but I didn't tell them at the convention because I wanted it to be a surprise. Right. And, um, <laughs> and the three of us went to dinner, Keith um, and his future wife and I, but I had no idea that this was like their first date, that I had, right. that I had somehow, I don't quite know how I did this, but I had somehow become the third wheel on Keith's first date with this woman. (laughs) And I I found that out later and I'm like, why did you let me come? (laughs) Well, uh, let me tell you, this is, we are, we, we, uh, we are celebrating tomorrow is our 21st wedding anniversary out of 25 years of being together. Congratulations. Thank you. And then, um, and then from the dinner, I went back to the convention and we were having some panel. I don't specifically remember the topic, but we're doing some panel and I knew Keith was coming and I was confident of that. So halfway through the panel, I said, Oh, ladies and gentlemen, Keith David and all eyes turn around and I'm like, sorry, sorry, just kidding. And, and they all were, oh, you know, so mad at me. Uh, and, and then later, a little bit later, same panel, I see Keith uh, standing in the back. And I 
So once again, I go, and ladies and gentlemen, here's Keith David, but they're all too smart for me. They're like, no, no, you're not going to fool me twice. And then Keith, you know, in his great voice says, well, hello. And he comes walking down the aisle and the place just explodes. (laughs) 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 I I literally thought people were going to faint the aisle. And it was, yeah, that was the first year of the convention. And again, uh, um, I think uh, maybe that's what Im- impressed her so much that she later married him. I'm, I'm convinced that's why she married him. Uh, uh, all of his fans, his yeah, it was something else. She still recalls that because I spilled something on my tie. And she said, you were dressed so nicely and so sloppy. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. And Keith, the fandom thanks you for your involvement with it. You've come to several of the conventions. You were always a pleasure. I wasn't at that first one, but I saw you at 2001 in L.A., then in Montreal, then in Chicago, then back in L.A. again. <laughs> uh, they, were, they were just always so much fun. I mean, I, you know, um, I, I, I would still go to them today if they had them. Wouldn't we all? I still tell people stories about you and I smoking Cubans in Montreal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I... I do believe we have an episode to discuss, the finale of the first season, Reawakening. And Greg, nice uh, call back to the pilot with that title. Yeah, I I think that was Michael Reeves' idea. Uh, There was a point where uh, I think the title of episode 13 was Awakening. And Mm -hmm. then we realized that we needed a title for the pilot. Um, We didn't want to just call it... uh, you know, gargoyles. That is, the TV series was gargoyles, but we didn't want to just call the pilot gargoyles part one, part two, part three, part four, part five, because it just felt weird that it didn't have its own identity, so to speak. And I, I'm pretty sure it was Michael who came up with the idea, well, let's take the awakening title and put that on the pilot, and then we'll call episode 13 reawakening. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's genius. Uh, mm fairly certain that was Michael. I can't be a hundred percent sure, but, uh, and my, my, my Lovecraftian loving brain immediately thought, uh, reanimator when it first came <laughs> up, but I don't know. Not so far from what we, you know, we got to. So, and we open with a flashback where we meet, um, a character who will become known as, well, at least in, in the credits as Othello and um, voiced by Michael Dorn. And we learn a little bit more about gargoyle culture. They address each other as brother, but we find out later that it's not biological. <clears throat> right. They were rookery brothers. Um, although I would say in those early days, uh, it's not that we didn't know that. It's just that we weren't focusing on that for the audience. You know, we wanted the audience to feel like, the relationship was truly fraternal. So we weren't splitting the hairs of whether he was biologically a brother or, um, or, uh, um, or the actual truth, which is that he was a rookery brother is from the same generation of eggs, uh, uh, in essence within the clan. And, and, uh, 
And when we cast the role, um, you know, Jamie asked, well, what, you know, what should I be looking for for uh, the fellow slash Coldstone role? And I said, well, this is Goliath's brother, so we need someone who has, you know, the kind of chops that Keith has that, so that he can hold the stage, so to speak, with Keith. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, and people ask all the time, how come there were so many Star Trek actors in, um, <laughs> in, in Gargoyles? And the thing is, is that, you know, we had Jonathan and Marina in the cast, so, you know, Jamie and I would have these discussions at recordings, you know, in other words, we'd be at a recording and we'd be looking ahead to who we were going to bring in for the next or the next two recordings kind of thing. And so, you know, we're sitting there going, oh, well, you know, we need someone with, who has those kind of deep uh, vocal chops like Keith has. And I'm looking through the glass at Marina and Jonathan and I'm like, well, what about Michael Dorn? Um because just the fact that they were there reminded us all the time that there was this great ensemble of actors um, over the hill at Paramount. And, um, and we also had a couple people on the cast who could tell the gang over there, hey, it's a good gig. The scripts are good. Uh, hey, Dorney, people you I need to sit you don't need to sit and make up for three and a half hours, <laughs> you know? Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, we, uh, uh, and we didn't hold auditions for guest characters, not in those days. Uh, and so, you know, we just offered the role to Michael and thankfully he said yes. And, and then you get these great scenes between, uh, Michael Dorn and, and Keith, um, and you really feel like they're brothers, uh, certainly by the end, anyway. And, you know, at the beginning, maybe not when they're fighting each other, but uh, by the end, you really feel well, like... Well, even, even in Cold Stones, like anger and rage and stuff, he's still, you could still see shades of, of Goliath there, still, like, mm-hmm. how he was handling it, you know, the betrayal, how it affected him, and even though it was a lie... Well, and that was one of the great things about group record, not past tense, uh, it's still true. One of the great things about group recording is that you, know, you get a great group of actors in there, and one of the things a great actor does is, is he, she, or they listen to their fellow actors. So, you know, uh, Keith and, and Dorney are in the booth, and they're listening to each other. And so... They're playing off each other, and you get this great rapport going. Mm. Um, and um, it's one of the things, you know, since the pandemic, you know, we're constantly just recording each actor in a vacuum, and we What's do the best we can. And, and I like to think we, we manage it in such a way that the audience isn't really noticing. But, you know... It's it's inevitable that you lose a little something um, by not having these actors in the room together, and that was the great thing. You know, back in those days, we would have everybody in the room together, and you know, Charles Hallahan, uh, Tom Wilson, who's about the funniest guy in the booth you could ever ask for, um, Asner, and. Uh, 
we just had this great group of people for this episode, um, and and all together. And yeah. um, who played Macbeth? What was the actor who played Macbeth? John Reese Davies. John Reese Davies. I love him. He was great. My favorite line. My favorite line. One of my favorite lines in the whole series was, "Know her." I named her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Iconic line. <laughs> like silly mortals. <laughs> <laughs> and then we flash into the present and we get the gargoyle credo. We got it in the past also. And um, I like how it seems that all of the gargoyles have practically forgotten it's meaning, and then Lisa comes in with the police credo. Gargoyle can no longer, you know, can't has to protect the castle, like that whole thing. But they've lost their castle. Yeah. So is that like so they've disconnected from the the idea that they need to protect something? Uh, and Elisa comes in with her protect, protect and serve. Um, and that whole exchange between Elisa and Goliath there, because Goliath is like kind of. It's really kind of quiet and introspective in that whole. Um, he's very soft when he's talking to Elisa there, and and it just is so good. The two of them just playing off each other is just fantastic. Yeah, it's sort of lovely how in tune she is with Goliath's move. You know, uh, she can tell from pretty much moment one that something's troubling him. She may not know exactly what it is. But she absolutely gets that something's troubling him. And, and it's kind of, uh, to me, that was just sort of lovely um, the way uh, they played off each other. Um, I, I really, uh, watching it again last night, uh, I'd forgotten about that aspect of it, that how in sync the two characters were and thus, you know, in essence, how in sync Sally and Keith were. And I had kind of forgotten about that. And it was, uh, really lovely. I thought, well, it wasn't hard from where I'm looking. (laughs) (laughs) He made it look easy, (laughs) not easy to pull off, especially when you're, you know, you're just dealing with voices like, but it, they so much like the animation in this episode's beautiful as well. But so much of that scene is just how they're handling it with the the voice acting, and it's just amazing. I love it. I agree, and just the idea. I love that Hudson's using the old gargoyle credo as an excuse not to go out into the snow. He just wants to stay home and watch television. We've all been there, and <laughs> um, <laughs> but Goliath is really thinking about it. Well, and then yeah, it's I mean, brought up, like, we, we don't need protecting, you know, the clock tower. It's a police station. So that throws it, you know, in that, that what are they protecting? Yeah, you know, and one of the goals for the episode as a whole that Michael and Frank and I discussed is, okay, this whole season, the gargoyles have been uh, largely reactive, you know, uh, Vikings attack, they deal with it. They get to the 20th century. Remember the 20th century? Anyway, uh, they get to the 20th century and, and they deal with it. You know, commandos attack, 
the pack attacks, the moment all these people attack them and they deal. But what we wanted to get past was this idea of them simply being reactive characters. And we wanted, as we headed into what we hoped would be season two, though we didn't at that time have a pickup for season two. We weren't 100% sure we'd get one. Um, uh, we wanted to set up for season two the idea that they were going to start being proactive. Mm-hmm. That they had their sort of... Um, reestablish their uh, raison d'etre in essence, that this idea that they would um, that they would begin protecting and and we talked a lot about what that would mean to Goliath and that there was still an element of his medieval mindset that you know obviously it wasn't about the castle anymore they weren't living there and it certainly wasn't about the clock tower um, so what made sense, you know, is it New York city? And then I thought, you know, I think that's a little advanced, a little too modern an idea for Goliath. But what we thought at that stage, which was still pretty early on in, in the series, um, was that he could view the Island like, okay, it's fortress Manhattan. You know, in other words, it's no longer the castle with the walls around the castle, but the Island, I get that Goliath could get his head around, Right, it's surrounded by water. There are bridges, but we're going to protect. We're going to protect this island of Manhattan, and Manhattan is Castle Manhattan. It is the basic idea that he would, he could comprehend, get his head around that idea of of protecting the castle, if the castle was this island. So it's not the five boroughs, for example. You know, it's just mm. that one island, which, you know, includes the Bronx uh, and Manhattan, but uh, it doesn't include Staten Island, Queens, and Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. um, well, maybe parts uh, of it. <laughs> you know, uh, because, uh, and that seemed to, to work for him. And then, you know, you wind up with this sort of lovely, I mean, it's funny, but this lovely kind of scene at the end where, um, you know, that, that robber who robbed the grocery store at the beginning of the episode comes in and it's like, I want to turn myself in. <laughs> and Mr. Jaffe, the guy who owns the store, played by Charles Hallahan, is so stunned. He goes, uh, why? You know, uh, he's not even happy about it. He's just confused. <laughs> Tom Wilson as the robber just says uh, uh, because six monsters just told me to like this guy is so scared out of it <laughs> he, uh, that uh, yeah he's turning in the gun he's turning in the money he wants to get arrested because that's how he's safe um, and then you get this lovely little scene with Elisa on the on the rooftop across the way and, and by this time the gargoyles are stoned but hey this, he's saying this city feels safer already and what we get now is um, these aren't just, you know, six gargoyles out to protect themselves. You know, to, it's not just about survival. That's not enough. They're stepping up and they're going to be heroes now for the city. And, I, and so that was something that we very consciously wanted to do, not just 
we felt it would be good to wrap up the season that way. You know, in other words, that would put a nice bow, awakening to reawakening. We're back to being what we were at the beginning of this series in the 10th century, which is protectors. We're going to be that for the 20th century in, in New York, in Manhattan. Um, so it felt like a nice bookend for the season, but it also set us up going into season two for them not just to be reactive characters, but to be proactive heroes in season two. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about our villains a little bit. Yes, please. Because um, we've we've got our our uh, little Frankenstein moment as Demona and Xanatos are working together again. Um. Uh, yeah, and we get the whole "it's alive, it's alive" line, which is hilarious. Uh, hmm. <laughs> uh, but they've they've put their heads together to come up with this one more thing to thwart our heroes. Um, and one of my favorite parts is that when Demona int- uh, introduces Xanatos as her servant, it, it like tickles me because I think she she's very serious about that. I think she's just seeing him as like someone who works for her to get her her stuff done. Uh, yeah, you know it's a fun moment. Uh, I, I think that she, uh, you know, views him. Uh, I think there's a little bit of, hey, I, I'm going to present a point of view that humans are problematic, and so, but I'm working with this human, so uh, for consistency's sake, I'm going to tell. Uh, or cold stone that this is uh, my servant, but I also think it's a, a window into her mindset. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm using this guy; he doesn't know it, but I know it. And you see, Xanatos is kind of annoyed look, but he also doesn't contradict her because he's smart enough to realize that. Okay, uh, I'll play along with this. I don't love it, but what the hell? You know? Well, through the through uh, the episode, he really lets her kind of take the lead but I don't think he ever intends for her to take the lead. Like at the end it, you know, he, he turns it around and he was never really, you know, going along with what she, she was dishing out. He was just, um, seeing where, how it played out from, from his point of view, she kept taking it to an extreme that he kept making it clear. He didn't want to go to again, because we always wanted to present Xanatos as this guy who wasn't wasteful you know, who, for whom, you know, he's not into vengeance. He sees the gargoyles as useful because he, he's capable, or at least, you know, of manipulating them, at least nine times out of ten. And, um, and uh, so why would he want them dead? You know, um, it was only one episode ago that he tried to get them to come with him to Xanadu, uh, it's like, hey, let me be your patron, you know, <laughs> let me come live at my estate and I'll keep you, you know, happy. Um, and because, you know, you never know. Never know when they might be useful when, again. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so he has to, in essence, thwart her more bloodthirsty ambitions. Um, but this isn't, you know, the big break between the two of them, between Xanatos and Demona. That comes in season two. Um, but, uh, 
it's clearly you begin to see some of the cracks forming in their alliance. But, uh, and, you know, this is actually a moment of tremendous cooperation for the most part. Um, you know, uh, Green used his science and her sorcery together to raise Cold Stone in the first place. Um, but you also begin to see the cracks starting to form that's going to split them apart uh, down the road in season two. I like that moment where she says that Coldstone, the Steel Clan robot, and Xanatos in the armor are her new clan, even though, okay, one of these people is a human, but... <laughs> she's, she's yeah, we just wanted to, we wanted to set up that visual of this sort of, you know... And Keith has this great line, clan, you don't know the meaning of the word, you know. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, it's just... Because then you look at her clan, it's Coldstone, Demona, a Steel Clan robot, and from Goliath's point of view, another Steel Clan robot that's just painted red. Um, it's only in this episode, the audience knows that that's Xanatos wearing armor. But... Goliath, Brooklyn, Lexington, Broadway, etc. They've been under the assumption that this red robot, this you know, is just another one of the robots, just slightly you know, like an upgrade version 2.0 of the robot. They don't realize it's uh, Xanatos until partway through the episode when uh, the suit starts to short circuit and Xanatos has to pull the helmet off and reveal mm. the side. and that's news to them. The audience already knew, but the gargoyles didn't realize it. So Such great stuff. If you were to uh, imagine a reboot, would you? where would you take it off from? Would you, would you go back a little retro uh, or take it from the future? Well, you know, uh, if someone at Disney actually said to me, what do you want to do? As opposed to telling me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> or ignoring me completely and going with somebody else, which is always possible. Um, my response would be, I would pick up, uh, in essence, uh, more or less where the second season left off. I mean, I'd leave space for the SLG comics that I wrote, um, to go in there. You know, you reintroduce the concept for a new audience who hadn't seen it, but this is an age of streaming. So, you know, if we were on Disney Plus with a quote-unquote new season, I would uh, say, hey, put the first two seasons up, which they have up now. I, You know, they can even put up Goliath Chronicles, even though um, I like to not count that as much. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, But, you know, and just, you know, if the audience wants to see what happened before, they're up there. They can watch it. And then you know, we would start right there. And, and in essence, um, not that I would spend a lot of time flagging this, um, but it would be a period piece. I'd said it in 1997, mm. you know, um, and pick up there. Uh, and I mean, why not? Uh, and just, continue the story. I mean, God knows I've got, and I'm not exaggerating. I've got notes for a couple hundred more stories. Um, and the odds are every time 
and this was so true about Gargoyles, every time we'd write a story, it would give us an idea for three more. Um, so I don't perceive it ever ending, mm. you know, given my druthers. Um, and I know some people are like, well, I want a definitive ending. And I'm like, yeah, that's not life. Yeah. Life doesn't have definitive endings, you know? Right. And particularly in a show like Gargoyles, which is an ensemble show, um, you know, there's, there were, you know, unless we, which by the way, I would never do unless we killed off every single gargoyle. Um, why would it end? Um, yeah. Yeah. and, uh, so I, I would just keep doing that. You know, we have also had a bunch of spinoff ideas, um, including, you know, Gargoyles 2198, which was set in the future. We had Gargoyles mm. Dark Ages, which was a prequel set before the pilot in uh, the 10th century. Mm. How about um, that? Wow, yeah. You know, we had Gargoyles Bad Guys featuring um, some of the villains of the series uh, in a sort of Dirty Dozen kind of scenario. We had uh, Gargoyles... Uh, Time Dancer, which was Brooklyn um, with the Phoenix Gate, you know, sort of lost in time, bouncing around all these different time travel episodes. Um, mm. And New Olympians. we had uh, New Olympians spinoff. Um, and uh, we had a notion about uh, Sheena Easton's character who I'm just blanking out. Uh, Heroes of Ulster? Heroes of Ulster, yeah. Banshee uh, and uh, uh, Kukulin, you know, traveling, uh, seeking redemption. And um, uh, so we had uh, just all these ideas. Oh, Pendragon. We had a Mm. series with gargoyles set during Arthurian times, how the gargoyles interacted with King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. <laughs> had all this stuff. Um, and, you know, there was a point when, um, I may have talked about this before, but when I was in a meeting with Michael Eisner, and um, it's ironic now because, of course, Disney owns Marvel, but at the time, this is 1990 four or five or something like that. Um, Michael wanted to buy Marvel. Mm. I was in the room when all these executives talked him out of it. And at the time, Marvel was in desperate straight. They were still the number one comic book company in the world. And yet financially they were in desperate straight. Mm. And Disney could have picked up Marvel for a song. Mm. Um, and they all talked them out of it. They said, look, you want to buy Marvel because you want to make a Spider-Man movie, but the rights to Spider-Man are already owned by Sony and, and they double sold them to all these different companies. And fantastic four is, you know, uh, there's a conflict between Canon films and, and, uh, Fox about who has the rights to Fantasy. It's like, it's just a mess. You don't want Marvel. Trust me. And Michael was like, okay, okay, okay. But, you know, Warner Brothers has 
DC Comics, we need, you know, the thing that Disney's missing is a superhero universe, an action universe for us to exploit. And he literally turned to me and he said, could Gargoyles be the impetus for that? Starting with Gargoyles, could we make, create, you know, a whole sort of continuity, consistent universe to build off of? And I said, yes. And so we very consciously created backdoor pilots with Pendragon and with, uh, um, and New Olympians and Time Dancer and all these things. But then while we were in the midst of creating these things to create this Gargoyles universe, you know, Frank Wells died. Michael and Jeffrey began feuding. Jeffrey leaves to found DreamWorks, taking both Gary Kreisel and Bruce Cranston, my immediate bosses, with um, Rich Frank leaves um, all these people who had been huge Gargoyle supporters go away. And then Eisner begins feuding with uh, Roy Disney Jr. And one of the results of that was that one of the complaints about Eisner, which was that he was a micromanager. Um, In essence, Eisner behaved at Disney like one of the old-style Hollywood moguls. And we didn't appreciate it at the time. But what we learned later is, is that when Eisner stepped back because of all those complaints and his, and his conflicts with Roy Disney, um, he did, you know, he used to choose the animated series personally, which ones were we going to make? Michael decided And back in those days when Michael said, we're making this show, everyone got on board or got out of the way. Uh, because Michael had said, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Michael stepped back, he didn't give that power to somebody else. It became a decision made by committee. And once that became a committee decision, you know, you needed, you know, you got somewhere between eight and 15 people at the table and you needed it to be virtually unanimous before you could get anything to go. And that was so difficult. And with all the gargoyles, all the people who had, you know, greenlit gargoyles and had been supporters of it, having either gone away or stepped back, um, we lost all support for that. Uh, We got furthest along with the bad guy spinoff but even that eventually fell by the wayside. Hmm. And, uh, and so what was going to be this whole Gargoyles action universe that would have eventually created comic books and, and I'm not kidding, live action movies um, just evaporated. Um, but there was a brief period of time when, uh, when Michael Eisner wanted us to be the Marvel Cinematic Universe for Disney, you know? Uh, and then, of course, <laughs> later, yeah. years later, uh, Iger buys Marvel, and, of course, at that stage, he's got to pay a fortune for it because by that time, Marvel had created the Marvel Cinematic Universe and um, and had been wildly successful with it. 
Um, and so Disney had to pay a fortune for it, whereas Michael Eisner, if he'd done it back in his day, could have gotten it for nearly nothing. But uh, those are the irons. Uh, yeah. I have another job, ladies and gentlemen, so I have to jump off. All right. Okay. Do, is there anything that you're working on that you want to promote? Uh, I'm working on a show about Joe Williams and um, Douglas the Prophet. Fantastic. Hello. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Thank been you. amazing uh, to hear your uh, voice again. I sir. had a great time. Thank you. It was wonderful to just yeah. hang out in this world for a long time. And <laughs> yeah, we would love Greg, to have you on You know, those, that, that somehow somebody picks that idea up again. We all hope so. And Keith, we would love to have you on again sometime to discuss one of the Theolog episodes down the line. So hopefully we'll all connect again. Yeah, do that. I mean, let's do it. All right. Okay. All right. Take care. So all right. Great. There are times when I watch the episode, Greg, and I wonder why isn't the secret out, at least among the cops, because Goliath seemed to be in pretty public view of them. But this time I noticed that overturned bus, which kind of disappears halfway through the scene. That may have been an animation error, but Annalise is uh, calling out his name next to Matt. And <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I watched it. I know the bus was there on purpose to sort of hide Goliath and when Elisa was near him, her from uh, view. But I also noticed that there's a point where Elisa's standing right next to Matt and yells out Goliath, which, of course, has no <laughs> meaning to Matt. But why is she yelling out the name of a biblical character at that moment? You know, you feel like you'd have to question it uh, in hindsight. Uh but uh, I kind of think we must have uh, skated by that back in the day. I mean, one of the things that we decided, again, Frank and Michael and I, early on, was that um, the gargoyles weren't going to jump through hoops to hide, you know, um, and that people would see them. And they'd tell people that they'd see them. But who would believe them? Um, they became urban the legends. cops, obviously, yeah, they'd be an urban legend. And the cops, particularly, we used um, the episode uh, The Edge to help create some level of also potential logical explanations for the spotting guard. Robots. Oh, it's robots. You know, uh, those creatures that we thought were creatures flying around, turns out they were robots. You know, that's what happened in the edge. Yeah. So we kind of figured that even in this episode, you know, they saw the creature, meaning cold stone, and bullets are bouncing off, and you're hearing metallic sound, and it's firing off a laser. It's like, oh, another one of those damn robots, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and if you caught sight <laughs> of the lion... You know, within the water from the hydrant, or uh, you know, with, you know, in silhouette from the spotlights or whatever. You know, he's the basic shape of those robots because, ironically, the robots were based on him. Um, and so, it all lends credence to the robot theory. Um, but uh, you know, uh, again, if someone believes, I don't think that. That lavender one was a robot. It's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
you just keep making that friends, you know. Um, it, it, it just Someone becomes this thing where a sea of robots. Yeah, you know, it, you. We weren't going to go out of our way for them to hide. That's not the gargoyle's mo. Um, on the other hand, they also it's not their mo to help hold a press conference either. So you know, they're not announcing themselves to the world, but they're not particularly hiding either. Um, so it, it's something in between that. So when she says, hey, we don't want to be on the news, I like, yeah, I probably don't. Let's move this someplace else. Um, but on the other hand, you know, he's not going to hide as opposed to uh, do his duty, you know. Uh, I'm not going to let someone die just so that I can stay in hiding. I'm not going to let people get hurt just so that no one catches me on camera or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. being a protector comes first. Staying in the shadows is a secondary motivation. Indeed. And I'm also thinking about some things you've said about Demona and Long Way to Morning and Temptation, how she was not lately, she didn't set out to to kill any other girls. She generally wanted to turn Brooklyn and Hudson. It wasn't until she lost her temper. But here she doesn't even seem to lose her temper. She relishes the idea of killing the trio after Goliath and Coldstone go back into the water. I mean, is, was that a show how far gone she was at this point in contrast to Goliath's reawakening optimism? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, we've got a... You know, Demona is not a bastion of consistency. Um, <laughs> you sure? I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I, I think that in the uh, with the idea being that Demona tends to be her own worst enemy. Um, you know, she has moments where she's thinking quite logically, usually at the start, you know, before things get heated. And then moments when she just kind of loses it, you know, um, and, and gets vengeful or gets angry and gets hot and, and does stuff that, you know, at a different moment, she would go, no, no, that's too far. Um, and, um, and the thing that I kind of love about that in a strange way is that she wouldn't view that as inconsistent. Um, you know, uh, because she's not that honest with herself if that makes sense. You know, um, there's an element of Demona that depends on her fooling herself. We, yeah, we see that a lot it, of that when we get to City of Stone. Like, right, she's, yeah. she's done it to protect her own mind against everything that's gone wrong that she's done to herself. Exactly. You know, in other words, it, there's a limit to what she can admit to herself because if she starts being tremendously honest with herself, you know, I think her fear, at least subconsciously, if not flat out consciously, is that she'll start to fall apart, that she'll break, that she's got to have an element of self-deception, of, of, of uh, being a little bit delusional, 
and I don't mean, you know, like um, hallucinatory or anything like that, but just not willing to, to admit to certain things in certain moments or else she'll break. And the one thing she's determined not to do over and above everything else is break. It's this idea of surviving. And that's something you get a, tr a really sort of wonderful contrast here. Coldstone even asks, is that all there is, mere survival? And she's like, what else do you need? Or something like that. And it's Goliath who says, no, that's not enough. You know, we gargoyles protect. If we're not doing that, we're corrupt. We, we, we've lost our way. Um, survival like is not... Goliath reminding this. himself, too, in this whole mm -hmm. thing. Like oh, yeah. He's yeah, this is all a reminder of, of what his purpose is. I think that very much so. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, in, in essence, the beginning of the episode, something is troubling Goliath, and I'm not even sure he knows exactly what it is at the beginning. Living in this clock tower, it's as decent a setup as they can get. And it's not really even about having lost the castle to Xanathan. Because he's feeling like, well, what was in the castle to protect? It's only not David, right? <laughs> not trying to protect Owen. Um, <laughs> you know, what was it? It's not the building. It's not about the building. So what is, and, you know, he's already learned the lesson, though. This is about family. It's about Brooklyn, Lexington, Broadway, Broadway, Hudson, Bronx. That's the family. That's what's important. But who are we? in the 20th century. And I don't think he quite has his head around it. But by the end of the episode, you know, it's when he first sees Coldstone and said, and Elise asks, what is this thing? And he's like an abomination. And that's his gut reaction to seeing the cybernetic zombie that Othello has become, you know? But it doesn't take long for him to realize, no, this is my brother. And why are we here? What are we doing in the 20th century? Oh, is it just survival? No, it can't just be survival. That's not enough. And so you get this, these great, this great poignant speech from Goliath that's theoretically addressed to Coldstone. But in point of fact is a self-affirmation of what, he needs to be and what they need to be. So it's addressed not just to Coldstone, but to Brooklyn, to Lexington, to Broadway, to Hudson, to Bronx, to Elisa, and even to Demona. Though, of course, she can't hear it. She you won't know, hear it. She can't allow herself yeah. to hear it. Um, because that puts the lie to so many of the choices she's made going back a thousand fucking years. <laughs> so, um, a thousand uh, years of bad choices. <laughs> right. You know, um, but that's, you know, and, and having Keith read that, uh, I mean, again, it's so gorgeous. Uh, Keith's performance is both a 
affirming and yet heartbreaking. Um, and, and it, it's just this sort of wonderful moment. And then it clearly works because Demona doesn't listen, fires off her gun. Coldstone jumps into the path. I mean, one of the things that I always thought was awkward about the episode, and I still think kind of awkward is that, you know, they fall into the river, right? Icy river. Goliath comes very close to drowning, but is rescued by Coldstone. And then, they both go into the river again. That's the And I guess the difference is, is between, you know, being slammed into the river when he's not ready for it and diving in to try to save somebody else. Uh, but I always much, remember. He was also much higher up the first time. Well, yeah, I, I just felt a little bit like, I remember thinking then and still kind of feeling that way that like, is there a way we could not go into the river twice that we could just do it once? And, and Michael and I talking about it and just not being able to crack it, um, that we needed both time. Uh, uh, and I always felt like, uh, it's just awkward. Um, but you know, life is imperfect. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say this on a personal note, wait, wait, as wait, a New York yeah, as a New Yorker, I'm thinking about the traffic jam that is being caused by the upper level of the George Washington Bridge being being closed. It, on a good day it can take two hours to get past that bridge on the riverside. <laughs> uh, and there's not a single car in sight. <laughs> well, imagine around the lower level and uh, the Lincoln Tunnel is probably also a traffic nightmare. Uh, I think we, I think we, kind of mentally made the decision that it was closed for construction or something like that. Obviously, it's not closed because the gargoyles are having a fight there, or else there'd be, you know, cars there already. So we, uh, I think we thought that it was closed for maintenance or something, and that's why they picked it. Smart, mm-hmm. smart. And I, and I love that Goliath flatters Xanatos into taking the fight over there. He refers to Manhattan as your city, which I'm sure he doesn't think even for a moment. Right. He's smart enough to know what'll, or he's begun to learn what works on Xanatos, what works on Nimona to, to, uh, there's a little, uh, lessons have been learned by Goliath over the course of the season. Yeah. Um, Xanatos. Xanatos is reasonable. Up to a point, yeah. <laughs> but we discussed it a bit, and I just love how... Gl- this is Goliath becoming a hero again. We discussed that a little bit earlier on. Regain his sense of purpose, redefine what it, what the castle means. I'm glad we were able to discuss that while Keith was still here. But I always thought it was an interesting choice, because most other shows that have had Goliath make that vow to protect the city at the end of the pilot. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't ready for that then. Um, we, none of us thought that. You know, it, it uh, um, you know, there's a moment at the end of the pilot where it's like, and again, it's Elisa who voices this, it, you know, this is promising, but here it's at the end of season one that she sort of turns around and goes, um, okay, now we're in business, you know, city's feeling safer already. Um, he's joined the good fight, 
so to speak. It's not just about getting by. It's about doing what's right. And that's a big change. But it's uh, something that, um, you know, makes her smile and I think hopefully makes the audience smile. And then really set us up well, I think, for season two. And change the tone of the series. Not significantly, but I think in a, in a real way, going into the next season. Yeah. Um, uh, they're still reactive sometimes, you know, sometimes something happens and they react to it, but it's not just that anymore. Some, just as often, I think, in season two and in the SLG comics, you see them stepping out to be heroes, stepping out to do the right thing, as opposed to waiting for something bad to come to them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a shift. That's a, that's a significant shift off of where we were for the bulk of season one. Yeah. Not the bulk, all the season. Yeah. Let's uh, also discuss your philosophy on ending seasons, because I've noticed in recent years, especially among Young Justice fans, that there are people who seem to want to, that big apocalyptic blowout, that definitive end. I mean, I see, for example, some wide... I'm, and this is, I'm only citing this because I see it quite a bit because it's a show that's currently in produ- being made and streaming, but everyone seems to have thought, say, that season three or season four is going to be that big confrontation with the lights and apocalypse, and you're getting the next story in sequence, you're getting open endings instead. Yeah, I mean, this is something, obviously, a lesson that um, I learned in uh, doing Gargoyles is that what we wanted at the end of the season was open-ended closure. We were, you know, reawakenings is a bookend to awakening. Um, And very consciously, right? Um, But it's not over, you know. if we had only gotten one season, which was definitely possible when uh, Michael and Bryn were completing reawakening, um, it would have been a nice little novel, 13-chapter novel, right? Um, but, and there's some closure there. And yeah, if we'd okay. never gotten another season, okay. Feel proud of the 13 episodes we did. Wish we had gotten more. Oh, well. But I would have been happy enough, you know, with the work that we did. But we leave it open to do more. And we did the same thing at the end of season two. Um, obviously, I can't speak for season three. That's for someone else to talk about since I didn't work on the life chronicles in any significant way um, after the first episode. And even that was taken out of my hand. Um, but when I'm doing the SLG comics, which I think most of the fandom regards as the true third season of the show, um, both on bad guys and on gargoyles, you know, open-ended closure. And that's been true for, any show that I've been the showrunner on, whether it's season two of which, uh, uh, season one of star Wars rebels, both seasons of 
Spectacular Spider-Man and all four seasons of um, Young Justice. It, the idea is that we are going to give you closure on the season, but we're not going to give you a conclusion to the series because we could keep going. We may not get to. Like, for example, at the end of season two of Young Justice, we didn't get to keep going until five years later when we did. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no one that. knew that was coming. In fact, it, yeah. by the time we finished writing, we were finishing the writing on season two. My boss, media boss, Jay Bastian, contacted Brandon Vietti and I and said, you guys know there's not going to be a season three. Is this really how you want to end season two? And so even though we knew there was not going to be a season three, um, we were like, yeah, this is it. Life goes on. Business as usual. Um, you know, we had concluded the plot lines of that season, but we weren't pretending that it was all over somehow. Um, so open-ended closure. And then lo and behold, five years later, I get a call from Sam Register saying, hey, we're coming back. Who knew? We didn't. <laughs> Glad that we did. Don't get me wrong. Oh, absolutely. But, but you know, not like we knew that was coming. Um, we absolutely did not. Um, so, you know, uh, that's the way it goes. Now, I'm not saying that everything I would ever do, you know, I could definitely see some projects having a beginning, middle, and end to them. But a lot of the shows, you know, uh, that I've done, what would the end be? As we were saying with Keith earlier, what would be the end point of gargoyles? I guess if I killed off every single gargoyle, which of course I would never do. Um, the only other end is that if we actually did a thousand years of stories and we finally caught up to gargoyles 2198, I guess I'd end gargoyles because then that would be over and we'd be at gargoyles 2198. <laughs> but short of that, you know, why would we ever create an end to it? Life goes on. Same's true about Young Justice, which is a ensemble show about young heroes. So why would it ever end? Our original cast might age out, but we were constantly introducing new younger heroes. And I'm still interested in the original cast, even though now they're not 14 to 16 years old, they're in their mid twenties. I'm still interested in knowing what's going on with them. We're playing this thing in real time. So why wouldn't I still be interested in them when they were 50 or 58 like me? <laughs> uh, you know, I still am interesting to myself, I guess. Um, so why wouldn't I? <clears throat> I mean, there's a reason we keep you around. <clears throat> well, mostly because I ramble louder and longer than most other people. But, um, um, but you know, I, I, uh, I wouldn't stop it for that reason. Now, if you had a show like Spectacular Spider-Man, that's not an ensemble show. We have an ensemble cast, but it's about Peter. It's about Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. So I could see ending that if we killed off Peter, which, by the way, I also don't have plans to do. 
But uh, at least there I could see, all right, that's what that show was about. That guy. We have this huge cast rotating around him, rotating around Peter's life, around Spidey's life, etc. But I suppose if we killed off Peter, it would be over. And even if we say, you know, um, brought in uh, uh, Miles as the new Spider-Man, that would be a different show, you know. I'm not saying one, they couldn't be in the same continuity. They could. But one show would segue into the next show. In essence, that would be a spin-off show and a new show. Um, because our show was about the education of Peter Parker. But as long as Peter's alive, I don't see the need to stop it. Because, hell, we had, he was still in his junior year of high school when the show ended. So, and he'd still be getting educated through four years of college, through graduate school. And to be perfectly honest, education doesn't stop when you leave school. And so we just keep educating the poor bastard. Often painfully. <laughs> um, until he was dead. And again, I had no plans to kill him off. So it, that, I, I could see how that one would end at least. But we had no plans to do that. And that's not, and again, otherwise, that's not how life works. And I get a lot of people, especially on Twitter, saying what, you know, how bad a storyteller I am because I refuse to, that good stories have endings. And I'm like, yes, good stories have endings, but life doesn't have an ending. You know, not life when it's about the world. You know, I mean, I guess I could blow up the entire Earth 16 and then Young Justice would kind of come to an end. But I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and there's no ending to, you know, life goes on. If over time, even, and again, not my plan, but if over time we killed off all of the original cast, it still wouldn't mean that it was over. It would just mean that we would be focusing on a different cast of character. Um, and to me, that's the metaphor for life that we're telling in that show. And the same would be true of Gargoyles, but not necessarily of Spider-Man because that was about one guy. It also told the story, incidentally, of all these other people in his life, but it was really about one guy. So it's a different beast, and yet the end result is more or less the same, open-ended closure at the end of every season. We do bring some closure to all the plot lines of that season. We're never pretending that it's over, that there aren't still loose ends, that there aren't still um, stories to tell. And that's why when people say you went on a cliffhanger, and it, as you guys know, that just drives me crazy because it just makes me want to say to them, I don't think you understand what the word cliffhanger means. Whenever you know, people do that, you cliffhanger is, yeah, whenever people do that, you just send them a YouTube clip of Riker saying Mr. Worf fire when Picard is a Borg. <laughs> That yeah, was definitely I mean, a cliffhanger. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, you leave some... I mean, the definition of a cliffhanger originates with the idea that your hero or heroine or whoever is hanging off a cliff. 
and is at risk of dying and you end and you don't know whether or not that person survived. That's a cliffhanger. It doesn't literally have to be a cliff. But in essence, that's a cliffhanger. The fact that I didn't, you know, at the end of season one of Young Justice, uh, we say, hey, there were 16 hours where six members of the Justice League were missing. What went on during those 16 hours? That's a loose end. That's not a cliffhanger. The fact that at the end of season two, we showed Vandal Savage and Darkseid shaking hands, that's intriguing, but it's not a cliffhanger. One's life is in danger. Um, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, the classic cliffhanger of all time, I suppose, from a television standpoint, and most of your audience won't remember this. Who, who but, shot uh, JR? You know, Dallas. Who <laughs> shot JR? You know, JR shot. You don't know if he lives or dies. You don't know who pulled the trigger. Um, that's a cliffhanger. But if you wrapped right. it up, they wouldn't be happy with that either. If nope. you wrapped it up in a no, nice no. little I mean, boat. The other thing. I mean, one of the things about any fandom, any fandom, is that uh, there are always going to be some fans who are like, why aren't you doing what I want? <laughs> and, um, but the problem is, is, is that you could grab any dozen fans who have that attitude and if you ask that dozen, okay, what is it you want? They wouldn't all agree. Some of them are like, you're not giving me enough Dick Grayson. Some of them are like, you're not giving me enough Tim Drake. Some of them are like, you're not giving me enough uh, Jason Todd. Three Robins. Hell, some would be like, you're not giving me enough Damian Al Ghul. Uh, four Robins. And I'm like, I can't possibly satisfy all four of you. So you know what? I'm going to ignore all four. <laughs> Just do what you want to do. Mm -hmm. and, because, and I know I've said this before. If I'm not passionate about the work, I've got to trust my own instincts. Because, if I, because I have to be passionate about the work. Brandon Vietti and I have to be passionate about Young Justice. Vic Cook and I have to be passionate about Spectacular Spider-Man. Frank Parr and I have to be passionate of, about Gargoyles. Because if we're not passionate about the work, then there's no passion coming through for the audience to feel. If we're just hacking it out or doing what we think, well, we think this is what the fans want, you know. So let's just do that because that'll make them happy. You know, then it'll be crap and <laughs> no one will be happy. I'm, I'm, I'm coming uh, like a, one of the other fandoms I'm in literally just everyone was dead at the end of it. End of show done. And every, they hated it. All the fans hated it. <laughs> I don't know anyone who likes that, liked that ending, <laughs> but you know, if you leaving it open, left it open for more stories, but instead they just, massacred everyone. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's a solution. It's not a solution I would ever use, right. but it's a solution. Uh, if you really want to end it, you want to make sure it's never going to effing come back. I guess that's the way to go. 
<laughs> but I'd rather leave it. I mean, look, season four is, I'll, I'll say this now. I guess you could call this a spoiler, but it's not exactly shocking. Season four will of Young Justice, which airs, will end on in June. This is going up June 24th. And it will end, uh, all right, so it's over by now. Um, and it will have ended with open-ended closure. Spoiler. <laughs> and we have no idea if we're back for a season five. We may be, they may pick us up by the end of the season because we're recording this in April. They may pick us up by the end of the season. They may pick us up five years from now, like they did after season two. I have no idea. Or they may never pick us up. But either way, I'm fine with it ending where it ends. And I will say right now, spoiler, it's going to end with open-ended closure. We will wrap up the plot lines of the season, but we will not wrap up the series. And there will be loose ends and there will be intriguing moments if we've done our job right that will make people, I hope, want a season five, which they may or may not get. And I'm okay with that. Obviously, I'd prefer to do the season five than to not do it. But that's not up to me. So all I can do is do what I think is right for the show. And if that means we're done, at least we went out the way we wanted to go out. All right. I like and it. I, I like I, it. I, I like that too. And me, I still want a proper third season of Gargoyles. I want a proper third season of Spectacular Spider-Man, even though that one is definitely never, ever going to happen. I want I want a season five of Young Justice, and um, but I'm also happy with what we got, and I'm happy that we'll be back soon on this show to discuss a long season with a lot of great stories. But before we wrap things up, Greg, this is going up on June 24th. Is there anything you would like to promote? Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, by June 24th, all of season four of Young Justice will be out uh, on HBO Max, and I hope uh, everyone will have watched that. I hope, in fact, that people watch all four seasons of Young Justice, which will be up on HBO Max, and keep binging them so that we have a shot at a season five. Also, uh, starting in June um, and into July, we are doing a a canon companion comic called Young Justice Targets uh, with DC Comics, uh, written by me, uh, penciled and inked by Christopher Jones, and, uh, um, and colored by Jason Wright. Uh, Christopher and Jason did those great YJ posters for season four that you uh, may have seen uh, on Twitter and other places, uh, you know, different poster for each arc of the season. Um, and so it's a great art team. And um, I've finished writing all the scripts for targets and I'm really proud of that story. It's a six issue miniseries. And uh, those are the things that, uh, that I can talk about. I mean, obviously it'd also be great if people kept binging gargoyles on Disney plus because, uh, the best chance we have that something happening with gargoyles comes out of, uh, uh, people, uh, Disney seeing on Disney plus that, uh, gargoyles is popular. 
And I also want to make the point again to people, X-Men 97 is coming out. It's a continuation of the 90s X-Men cartoon. They brought back the original showrunners and as many of the voice actors as they could. It's a period piece set in 1997. They're getting what we want. It's Disney. It's possible. Don't give up hope. And with that, Jen, do you have anything else you would like to promote? Nope, I'm good right now. Well, hopefully we'll have some stuff up soon to sell. And um, I want to thank all of our listeners for making it through the first season with us. It was a pleasure. I think we are going to be going into season two. We have a lot of great plans for the podcast. And um, see you soon. Like the series itself, we're just getting started. wanted to say that.